Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. A little bit of housekeeping, everyone, before we get started. Uh, My voice is cracking a little bit. I had to wear a mask today for a doctor's appointment. Don't worry, I'm fine. I just had to wear a mask. And when I do, I get dried out. Let me know in the comments if you guys actually get dried out because it's really weird. I think it's because you're breathing back your own air. And no matter how much water I drink, I'm still kind of raspy. So forgive me if uh, if I sound like uh, the puberty episode of the Brady Bunch today. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm doing the best with what I have here. Now, I'm going to say something on this show, and I can't believe I've never done an episode on this before, but timing being everything is, is uh, I think there's no better time, and you'll hear why in a minute, for me to do an episode. It's June 1st, and I just want to say Happy Pride, everyone. Listen, I know these are uncertain times. I'm stuck in the middle of Pennsylvania, and and I see it on the news. There's riots in the streets. There's a a pandemic that we don't know when it's going to end, or is it going to come back in the fall, an uptick, and everybody have to lock down again. There's a general sense right now that the world is changing, and not for the better. It is my hope that Pride Month will be a beacon of light in the dark days that are upon us. Because pride reminds us that the world has changed for the better in many ways. This year, I want pride to be a reminder that we've come way too far to give up now. Someone who has come very far with his own self-acceptance and love is our guest today, Dr. Francois Clemens. Most of you will remember him as Officer Clemens, the African-American policeman on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You may remember that Rogers broke racial barriers with Francois, especially during the landmark episode of The Neighborhood, where Fred invited France to dip his toe into a kiddie pool with him. At the time, public school, public pools were, segrega- were segregated, and schools were too. But Dr. Clemens had another secret. He was gay. He lived a closeted lifestyle for many years in order to protect his career. Now, Francois is speaking out about his journey in a book entitled simply, Officer Clemens. And if I had to take away one thing from reading this beautiful book that that made me cry so many times for a lot of reasons, trust me, if there's anyone out there carrying the baton for Fred Rogers, it's Francois Clemens. I mean, he just comes from that school of patience and love and even-handedness. I mean, Dr. Clemens, if you're listening to this, I want to tell you, in some ways, I knew I was talking right to you, but I felt like Fred was speaking through you. You have his temperament. You have his patience. It, it was it was absolutely phenomenal. Now, we, we don't talk about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. very. We touch on it very, very briefly. This is an interview about Dr. Clemens' journey to his truth. Now, I've never felt it necessary to speak my own truth on this show. It's just one part of myself. I know a lot of people, it's part of their identity and, and more power to them. It's it, For me, to each their own, and that's what this community is about, it's just one part of myself. 
And those of you who listen closely to this show and are fans and sense themes, you know about me. I've, I've never hit it. But I, I do not believe I've ever said those two little words on this show before about myself. But I said them to Francois. And to speak so openly about myself with a man I have admired for many years, it's one of the greatest gifts of my life. The day the interview was done, and we did do this before all of uh, this unrest going on right now, this particular, uh, this particularly charged unrest, I posted the song that ends this show because I was just so moved. We did it over Skype. I thought he would turn his camera on, but uh, he didn't. And you should, so you just see me reacting. And in this whole hour episode, you will laugh, you will cry, you will be moved. But mostly, I hope you'll be distracted from the gloom and doom outside your door. This episode ends so beautifully with that song that I will not join you again to wrap up. All I will just say is just stay safe, keep a positive attitude, and just, for Pete's sake, love one another. Show it in those little acts of kindness. Show your neighbor, show your partner, show your brother that you see them. Just in these uncertain times, show love. Come with me now to Dr. Clemens' neighborhood. Dr. Francois Clemens, this is beyond an honor. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Well, I'm just fine. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's good to be with you. Well, it is so good to have you. Before we go back to the beginning, what inspired you to write the wonderful book simply entitled Officer Clemens. Did you read it yet? I read the introduction and bawled like a baby, and I haven't gotten further. My God, it's beautiful. <laughs> I just got I it today. Two of my very good friends also told me that within 20 pages, 25 pages, they were crying. I, that's not what I wanted people to cry. I wanted them to think and to feel, yeah. uh, to understand the loneliness and the challenge that I had as a boy uh, trying to uh, do what all my other friends were doing because I knew that I was different at a very, very young age. I just didn't quite fit into the pattern of the boys around me. And I kept trying to say, well, why do I want to do that? Why, why do I want to stay inside and play with dolls or stay inside and play with the girls or be with the girls? And um, so I was rather judgmental, hard on myself. My family used to chase me out of the house and say, go out of the house, go and play with the boys. And that meant, you know, go play football or basketball or something more vigorous for a boy. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't interested uh, in being with the boys like that. They were, it was rough. It had a street side to it. And by that, I mean elbows, you know, <laughs> accidentally get hit in the mouth, teeth. Oh, yes. So I like to stay inside and do um, play jacks or jumping rope. With the girls the girls were sensitive mm -hmm. and in some ways i'm a sensitive i'm a gentle person uh i'm an extrovert but i'm still a gentle ex extrovert so i wanted to stay inside where i could do things like that and my parents would see me pick up one of my sisters 
dolls and say, put that down, put that down. But you know, boys, they just said G.I. Joe and they have a doll. They're dolls for men, I think. And uh, but my parents were not thinking that way. They thought if you mess with dolls, you're, you're going to be gay and we don't want that. Well, so I thought about not having any role models as a young kid. I, I didn't you couldn't sit down and read a book yeah. and try to figure out what these feelings were, what to do with them. So I said, I'm going to write a, a book that tells a, as much truth as I possibly can about what my life was like so that I could reassure the next generation that they're not alone because I definitely felt alone. And I thought, well, if I can make life easier for the next little gay boy and little gay black boy, you know, in the ghetto, it's very difficult to be gay mm-hmm. uh, because they are they can be very abusive. And they're intolerant sometimes. So um, I thought, I'm going to write something that's going to serve as an example and uh, as a role model for them so that for future generations, I seriously, I thought about that. And being a musician, I thought, well, there are a lot of little boys who want to play jazz. Uh, They want to play blues or that kind of down-home music. And, uh, And they're gay. And, you know, the jazz guys are notoriously straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found out as I lived, continued to live, that that's, a, <clears throat> that's just a, uh, a facade. And, uh, and many of the guys wear it very well. And after you get to know them, you, they let you know that they're either bisexual or on the down low or that they are attractive to some of their own sex also. But it takes a while to get to that point. And I was an adult before people started sharing that kind of information with me. So I thought if I wrote a book like this, where I really talked about things that were important to me, like the spirit, having a religion, and also um, an artist, someone who practiced every day and disciplined myself and performed, kids would have realized, yeah, this, this is just a normal life. It's not something so extraordinary about what I'm doing that other kids cannot do it. But they need to know you end up okay. It's all right. When did you know, and and by the way, we're going to go there today, and and please push back if I'm asking too many things. I'm not going to get untoward with you, but I want to know, as somebody who was young and started out, you know, yourself playing with with dolls and and doing more feminine things, more sensitive things. When did that interest in in guys come into play? When did the gay end of it? When did that start to hit you as you were growing up? Well, um, the truth is, by the time I was eight or nine, mm-hmm. I re- recognized that how much I liked uh, the male company. That that was profoundly satisfying to me. So it was not a very big distance to go from camaraderie, close friendship, to the erotic. Mm -hmm. It really was, there was no um, big sea change in how I related it to boys or men. It just simply became deeper and more intense or more serious. Because um, I, I didn't have to suddenly, you know, get to puberty and like men. I liked men all along. I liked being with them. And I found that I have a sensitivity. Uh, I have a gift of bringing out a certain warmth and uh, caring 
uh, nature in in uh, these butch straight guys or these butch gay guys or guys who don't know what they are. <laughs> and there are <laughs> lots of people like that. They don't know yet. And I did. And so I, I was very close to several of my buddies and they were very protective. And it's a quality that's innate. I didn't have to work to be like that. I am like that. And uh, so some of the guys really treated me as though I were their girlfriend or a girl who was with them. And sometimes they said it out loud. Other times they just simply behaved in a very uh, moved, positive way. They were not brute. They were not uh, aggressive. They, uh, and so I began to know guys know he knows you like him or he, he likes you to like him. Or, and uh, the, their actions were, were mitigated when I was with them and I talked with them and I learned to use that ability in order to get along and in order to um, make, to make friends. I, I had, a uh, as an extrovert, I had a way of approaching another guy that I liked so that I wouldn't offend him or have him, you know, hit you in the jaw or knock you down or something. I, I learned a certain um, gentle way of, uh, pre of presenting myself so that I could have a positive time. No one taught me how to do that. I just figured that out from uh, watching people and being around people and watching how they reacted to me. Mm -hmm. But I've always known in a sense that I'm gay. I didn't know what to call it. And I didn't know why I didn't stop because I had boyfriends who said, when you get to a certain age, you're suddenly interested in girls. And that never happened. I never suddenly looked at a woman and said, oh, I, I desire to be intimate with her. Never. But I, I love women, and uh, they're like your girlfriends. So I reached out, mm -hmm. and I made lots of women friends. I've always had a whole um, best girlfriend, but it was not erotic. That's all. And yet, through all of this, you were able to do this well, while closeted during that time. How hard was that to pursue those relationships? Well, there were times Not when I was miserable. Yeah. Uh, because some of my girlfriends were dating the guys that I wanted to date. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, in those days, uh, I spent a lot of time, we, and we talk about how the boys walked, or how they wore their pants, or if you could see their chest hair, you know, when they were at a certain age, they open up the front of their jackets, their, their coats or shirts, and they say how nice those things looked, and I felt the same way. So we talked together like that, but I mostly listened because I didn't want any of the girls to say, hey, why are you admiring that boy with me? Or why are you so, uh, why do you care so much? They never did, but I was very careful how I expressed myself. Do you think they knew? And, uh, uh, I think some of my girlfriends knew, yes, because I I was never interested in kissing them or touching them a certain way, and they would sometimes come and tell me that, that guy named Gerald, you know, the one blah, 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 well, he did this, or he tried to do that, or he was trying to kiss me, and I said, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say, oh, that's terrible, I just sh uh, share my shock, so um, they would tell me, and they would tell me things, I hung out with the girls, and I knew all the secrets. I have always known the secrets. And sometimes the guys in high school, they would try to get 
become close to me so I could tell them, uh, uh, my girlfriend, girlfriends, he, he likes you or he wants you to call him or he wants to call you or he wants your telephone number. I was constantly used as a go-between. And I liked it. It made me very popular with the guys and very popular with the girls. What is the stigma? Now, I'm gay and white, which is why I'm being so forthright with you is because I'm a member of the community. Um, what is the stigma? As a white person, I can't understand it. I can empathize with it. But what is the stigma about being gay and black and from the South? What about the blackness side of it just makes it so much worse? Well, it's the society that's telling you that black is not good. You know, we had that saying in the 50s that black is beautiful. Um, we, we, have a, we had a long way to go because you were condemned by your color. And if you're condemned by your color, my goodness, what can you do? I'm not going to change my blackness. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, during the Age of Enlightenment, the last century, uh, no, century before last, everybody um, was examining whether uh, black people were half human, one-fifth human, one-fourth, one-third, what? Um, they, were, they were searching. Because I think also there was this thing of black people becoming Christian. And when black guys and women became Christians and involved in the church, their spirituality was sincere. And it challenged white uh, 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 clergy and, uh, and white gentry. That he was a very sensitive person who just happened to be a different color. Well, now, what is that all about? How could he possibly be like that? So they began to ask questions about race. In my opinion, when I read history, there were lots of uh, black people in the Greek mm-hmm. society, in the Persian society. They were not white, European white. They were brown, and, and, and many of them were black. Uh, I was surprised the first time I went to, uh, uh, to Egypt, and I went into those different pyramids, and uh, uh, when you take those tours, and some of them you have to go down, way down into the ground. And when you come up, the chambers are very cool and very uh, clean and clear. But they have lights uh, that some of them have put, some of the uh, uh, curators have put inside. And those lights are warm and gentle and all that. But they reveal the black skin of the pharaohs, of the royalty of ancient Egypt. So when you read Egyptian history, you read about the relationship to, to Chad and to Sudan and to Ethiopia and, um, uh, you know, um, the other countries in, in that area. Well, what you discover is that there's an African presence, a major African presence. And Egyptians were frequently Nubian, and the Nubian was black. Well, my goodness, they never told me that in school in history. And so had they told me that the the pharaoh, the great leaders of these Egyptian cultures were black, I would have had a different feeling about the power and the presence of white, black people, excuse me, in in history, in society. It's it's like um, Othello. You understand that so much better if you realize that there were black people going in and out of the, the societies. They were not absolutely cut off. In fact, Northern Africa with Alexandria and some of the other cities that were established, they were predominantly black. Yeah. Lots of black presence. And I began to learn 
to look under the under the covers or beneath uh, this veneer that people put up not to talk about who's black and who's white. So in the in the um, black community, being gay is looked down upon because of the Christian influence primarily. Once the Christian influence came along, it was no longer acceptable to uh, to be intimate with your own sex. In the Persian culture, the, uh, the uh, uh, Macedonian Greek culture, it was very often seen that men were attached to another man, or sometimes they got married and they still had a boy, someone whom they mentored. Mm-hmm. And uh, those cultures did not condemn you for your homosexuality. They simply saw it as another way to express yourself. Uh, there's a whole history. Uh, I was reading Mary Renault the great writer uh, from South Africa who wrote the trilogy on Alexander the Great. Uh, uh, Wonderful, wonderful books about the Persian boy. And in it, she talks about uh, Alexander sleeping with a boy every night. And uh, there was no uh, mystery. He slept with the boy to keep warm. Well, they became intimate. Mm -hmm. And that was expected. That was fine. Uh, And nobody teased him or put him down but he wasn't the only one some of the, his soldiers and compatriots and they also had had the boyfriend society was sometimes separated between men and women and then there were the eunuchs in between who had been uh, surgically uh taken uh, changed so, so that they could be with the harem or worked in the temple or the church there was a place in the society for uh guys who didn't were not either male or female but eunuchs and that kind of thing was, was so common. But once Christianity came on the scene, first of all, they thought it was bloody to, to, to uh, cut off somebody's genitalia, especially when they're rather young, and uh, dedicate them to the Catholic Church or to the um, or Orthodox Church. So they, they frowned on that very much. And that, to me, is when the slaves were taught things about religion, that was one thing that was the Puritans. They stressed uh, how you, a man shall not lie with another man. Because, you know, the, um, in the ancient Jewish temples, they did everything. By that, I mean they sold food. It was like an open market uh, outside of the, the, uh, the temple. And you could buy clothes. You could buy cloth. You could buy shoes, leather goods, hand goods of all kinds. Well, you could also go to the temple and give a certain donation to the um, to the rabbis, and you were allowed to have sex with one of the uh, uh, women who were had been given to the church uh, as a when they were very young, like six or six months, seven months old. They were given as a as a living sacrifice to God. So that living sacrifices and looking for virgins was a big deal among them and so uh that characteristic that idea was carried over into modern times where you were not allowed to do certain things it was frowned upon and it seems like the people who were the most uh deprived were the ones who became the most strict about things like that and that is black slaves and uh those who were christian but not i think when they converted what made them different from the average guy and that was there are certain things you could and could not do. And sex was one of them. And the idea of sex with the same 
person became an abomination. So fascinating. It really is. The history there is just something that I think if more people studied, they'd be so enlightened. I want to switch gears. I want to talk about mm-hmm. your I want to talk about your music. You have a gorgeous, gorgeous voice. <laughs> of course, which everybody heard on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But where did the music begin for you? And was your family supportive of your choice to pursue music? Well, my family, the music began in my mother's womb. I sang before I was born. I know it. Uh, my great-grandmother sang. My grandmother, uh, many sang. And my mother, Inez, sang. Um Music from that standpoint was very, very common in my home. We often sang together when I, after I was born and I was sitting. We, when we sat around, we didn't have uh, our laptops or our uh, tablets. We, we sang songs. We told stories. And uh, I listened. I loved the storytelling. Uh, I'd want my great-grandmother or my grandmother, someone, tell me a story. I, I, th- I don't think I was unusual either as a kid. But... Uh, that's what our family did, made music. So when I went to church, I sang. And it was soon, uh, 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 the people in the church were soon aware that that little boy over there can sing. He's singing. (laughs) And so they (laughs) encouraged me to sing. And uh, people loved to hear me sing as a boy. And they taught me songs like Jesus Loves Me and Amazing Grace and Precious Lord. And uh, songs like that, I'll Fly Away, they taught me those songs by rote. I listened to what they said, and I sang with them, and I, I learned to, to sing. And I discovered that I not only had a, a, a nice, nice voice that they liked, but I could sing harmony. If they sang, I heard this, this harmonic quality, so I can sing a duet with anybody. Uh, because I can, I decorate it, and I, you know, I do like sewing filigree it's uh, ornament ornamental so um i love to do that and i've done it my whole life and many people are amazed how do you do that what do you hear it's a gift it's like the person who plays the piano without music that's the gift to play by ear well i have a gift and that gift of being able to harmonize anything is something i've always done and always enjoyed it's a fun thing for me when i'm doing that it's fun so people began to give me special privileges based on the fact that I could sing or would sing. I was willing to come and uh, be uh, obedient and work as a partner in doing presentations and stuff. And I can remember they said, oh, that's Francois. He'll come and he'll, he'll be very good at that. I used to listen to them talk, uh, talk about me. And they, they took full advantage of, in the positive sense of the word, of this gift. Now, I wasn't encouraged to go out to nightclubs or sing music, uh, pop music and stuff it was all very very sacred but Mm -hmm. they knew that i could do it and so they invited me to do more and more until i I sang in the choir in church my goodness i guess until i was like seven six or seven years old i could stand up next to them and sing what they were singing i sang the melody mostly as a boy but uh, i began to when i got to nine and ten i began to sing harmony and uh, decorate music vocally and the next thing I know, the choir director said to me, come and sing here in the choir. I, I need you over here. And then she would say to me, sing that part that you made up. Well, when I, what I was making up was a harmonic, natural sense of harmony for what she was doing. And they encouraged me to do that. And so I continued to do it. Next thing I know, she said, okay, we're going to take, le- um, take the alto. Let's play the alto part. 
or we're going to play the soprano part. And I would, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm listening. Sounds wonderful. It sounds like water. I love the, the you know, the sound of rolling water. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. So I, um, I began to, to do that with my choir director. Her name was Madeline. And I did it all the time until one day she said, here, you teach them this part, the, the baritones, the basses, or you teach the altos. And I would sing their part. And I absolutely loved it until the, finally one day she said, you, you do this part. I'm just going to sit over here and you show me what you can do. And I literally took over the choir. I knew what to do. And I loved it. People liked my leadership abilities they listened to what i told them uh we got to do more adventurous things because i thought the, the organist was very 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 conservative with her old boring hymns and stuff <laughs> so i began to do you know more like more gospel more uh, creative innovative stuff and uh as i say it was a great joy to sing so i did lots of um for about three four years i was the unofficially the choir director and Madeline was the woman standing behind me, encouraging me the whole time. I give her so much credit for recognizing my abilities when I was so young. Rather than being offended or threatened, she uh, encouraged it. And because she encouraged it, I did a lot of it. And people began to ask me to do more and more. I'd leave a quartet or a quintet or a sextet or septet or octet. It didn't matter how many. I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I did a lot of it. I, when I was in high school, I became the leader of the boys' ensemble, which was a uh, basically an a cappella group of, of high school kids who, uh, you know, out of the choir, you, you choose uh, eight, your best eight voices or six voices, and they would sing together, and they asked me to be the leader. And it was the first time in my high school's history they took our picture and they put it up on the wall that a black person was not only in the group but the leader of the boys ensemble it was a big deal and i'm very 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 happy to have had that experience i was very close to my music teacher also i i, I wish i could have music class all the time <laughs> <laughs> but of course that was not possible but we had eight eight um eight quart eight what do you call them eight um octet? hmm are you saying octet no 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 we had eight periods during the day, oh, 45 yeah. minutes. Uh, there were eight, eight, the first period, second period, third period, fourth period, like that. And every time I could get a chance, I'd go to the music room where the music teacher was. If I had a study hall or if I had a, um, a class that met every other week or some, some variation that allowed me to have extra time, I would go down to the music room and find my music teacher. And then I would hang out with him. And he, he handled it very, very, very well. He was like Madeline in that he encouraged me to come and to be there and to do musical things. It was like being in training, being an apprentice. I didn't call it that. I didn't re recognize it as that. But that's exactly what it was. He was mentoring an apprenticeship. And because he gave me extra time, uh, I learned extra music. I began to do certain solos. Uh, and then one day though, I was at home and a social worker heard me sing. And she offered to pay for my voice lessons. And that social worker, I mean, I was a sophomore, 15, I guess, in high school. 
And she just finished uh, college getting her master's in uh, sociology and stuff. And uh, she had gone to school to become a social worker. Well, she heard me sing and she was, oh man, she was very excited. I remember how excited she was. <laughs> and she said, I'll pay for your voice lessons if you'll promise to study and be diligent and uh, apply yourself, listen to your teacher. I think I know someone who could be, I said, voice lessons? Yes, because I was in a, a school that had been segregated inside. They had the rich white kids together, the Jewish kids together, the Latin kids together, and the black kids together. And it's amazing. I talk to my buddies now, 50 years later, and they realize the racial segregation, but they did not realize or understand or comprehend it when we were in junior high and high school. I did. And the reason I did, because the black kids would tease me and say, you're only going to class with those white kids. Why aren't you coming to our class? And I didn't realize the school had tapped a certain number of kids in each class that they considered very bright. And those 12 or 15, 20 students, they would have classes together. And I was always included, always. And so I didn't know it at first that it was based on race as much as, you know, just the fact that I, I got along very well. And uh, well, here we go once again, the assignments. Uh, black boys didn't study. They were outside playing basketball or, or trying to have sex with girls. And I didn't want to do that. So I stayed at home and I studied. And much to my surprise, I was doing very well in my classes. No, none of my family, my parents, my uh, aunts and uncles disciplined me to stay home and work. I did. I did it because I, I wanted a certain attention. I discovered that my teachers were giving me very, very positive feedback because of my academic excellence. Uh, and that was that was a great um, thing to have in my life because I, I didn't play basketball or football or run track. I could run track, but instead I chose to sing and play my clarinet. And I, I came home and I practiced. And I was getting a lot of positive feedback from school and from my teachers. And the music teacher uh, who taught me to sing, he began to uh, have me come to his home for dinner, lunch. He had no children. He and his wife, Marcia, spent a lot of time together. And they would say, well, Francois, do you want to come this weekend? And I would ask my parents if I could go over there and stay. And they would say, yes, go ahead. And um, he was uh, the, the music teacher was Dr. Gould at Youngstown college was um, a well-respected man in our community and the fact that he paid me attention gave me a lot of uh, status among my uh, peers oh mr Gould, dr Gould likes you dr Gould. so uh he began to give me teach me the messiah the elijah uh, the creation oh lord um the different uh oratorios box saint matthew passion uh, i i sang all of those with him he was like a tutor. He mm -hmm. was my tutor. Boy, did he. And I loved it. I worked very, very, very hard on uh, my music lessons. And the, the social worker and my uh, voice teacher were the two who suggested that I go to Oberlin instead of Youngstown State University or Youngstown College in those days, because they wanted me to, uh, to have a vocation. Uh, the counselor in, in high school, Mrs. Kreisen, said that that's what I should do for my life. Learn to be a tailor or a cook, a chef or a bricklayer or um, a plasterer or something. 
a tailor I could learn to, to sew and make things and always able to make a living, she said. And I was outraged at her making such a suggestion. Not that there was anything wrong with it because I already knew how to cook and I knew how to sew a button on. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't want to do that for a living, for my life. And I felt that I could make a living as a singer, as a musician. And so we had a very sharp exchange. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. But, well, yeah. but all around me, there, there was people encouraging me to continue my, with my singing. I love that. And one of your biggest uh, champions in your entire life, one of your best friends, uh, you know, you talk about how you met him in the book, but I want to jump to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and oh. Fred Rogers. And well, I did that Good Friday yeah. concert at Third Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a very, very special event. I didn't realize, you know how you do some things uh, unaware they yeah. say, be, be kind to strangers because you never know that. Uh, you're unaware you may have entertained angels and there's a blessing. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, wasn't aware of what it, uh, I was doing, singing spirituals, and um, how it I went deep inside of people. And they, they were very empathetic to what I was doing. So I did this Good Friday service where you sing uh, uh, Calvary and uh, Were You There? When they crucified my Lord, and he never said a mumbling word. You know, it goes on like that last one is the angels roll the stone away. Oh, the angels roll the stone away. Oh, the angels roll the stone away. Was on that Easter Sunday morning when the angels roll the stone away. So I put that program together and I did it with the preacher and with the organist. And they uh, chose passages from the Bible that were uh, comparable to what I was singing, which, which uh, spirituals I wanted to do. Well, that service really, really, really evidently touched Fred and many other the, the patrons there, the members of the church. Because I swear to you, when, when it was finished, we sat very quietly and the preacher suggested a prayer. And then uh, the organist played some very uh, special music for that occasion. and people began to get up and leave. Well, I swear to you, half of those people came right up there to the altar where I was in order to hold me or embrace me and thank me for such a wonderful, wonderful Good Friday service. They told me how deeply moved they were one after the other. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do this again next year, I guarantee you. And uh, Fred was the last one in line. And I almost left, but he was standing there, and I knew uh, he was paying attention to me, so I, I waited, and he walked over to me and said, oh, Mr. Clemens, young man, you were just wonderful today, and he told me how deeply touched and moved he had been by the songs and by my commitment to those songs. My, the way I sang them was just thrilling to his heart, and he said, in the course of that conversation, would, would you like to go to lunch? Can, we, can I take you to lunch? And I said, yes, if you're paying for it. As long as you're paying, I'll go. Well, you know, when you're young and you're, you're struggling and somebody wants, oh, yeah. to go to, uh, wants to go to um, go out to a restaurant or something, well, I didn't have that kind of money. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. uh, I, as long as he was going to pay for it, I, I'll go. 
So uh, the day that I went to, I'll never forget, I went to lunch with him. Uh, the, um, his wife, Joanne, and the organist, they also came. And that was really mm-hmm. great. And the four of us sat there. We had a drink uh, before dinner, uh, lunch. I had something very light, like cranberry juice or something. And I noticed that Fred didn't, uh, he didn't drink very much either. So he, he, he had a juice, lemon juice with water. Um, so as I'm uh, sitting there, they say, I'm sorry, we're going to leave. I have an appointment this afternoon. I thought, well, where are you guys going? We haven't eaten yet. You're going to get a free meal. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where my mind was. It was so, uh, so based at that point <laughs> still. So they left. They made their regrets and they left. And he and I were sitting there alone. Well, I tell the story that Fred started listening and asking me certain questions. And I never shut up. I kept talking and talking and talking and talking. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, he doesn't have anything to say. <laughs> what's, wrong, what's wrong with this man? Oh, boy. It was a lot of, you know, those kinds of... Culturally, we had come from different cultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my culture, a young man kept quiet and the adults did the talking. Mm-hmm. But here was the case of a, a man who seemed very intelligent, very sensitive, tell, asking me all these questions, and he was sitting there just listening. And I do remember saying in my book, I don't know when it was, but he had a gift that it seemed like he hugged me without touching me. That's how warm he was. And uh, he would sit there with those blue eyes and he would just look and I would listen and he would ask me certain questions and I I would talk to him and he would ask me another question and I'd talk to him some more. And afterwards he said, "Come, come over to the station, WQED. And let me show you my studio and what, what, my, uh, what we do over there. Well, I was only a little bit interested. I said, okay, all right, I'll go with you this first time. And I went to the station. And to be very honest, it's like a, a new world opened up to me. I had never been in a um, uh, recording studio or t- a television studio in my life. Mm-hmm. So the, those cameras uh, and the, uh, the scenery... Uh, that he used, like the, the castle and the trees where Henrietta and X the Owl lived and the, uh, the Eiffel Tower. I looked at those things. I thought, well, that's like being on stage. That's all. And then he opened up a, um, a suitcase and he took out King Friday and he started talking like he does mm-hmm. and holding up the puppet. You know, I did not grow up with puppets. And I was uh, in a state of shock and and not figuring out what to do because I didn't want to insult or hurt his feelings, but I didn't know how to react. And he kept talking to me until finally I I responded, but I felt, this is strange. Grown men don't play with these puppets and stuff. This is what the kids do. What is this grown man doing playing and and using the voice of the king? And then he did the queen. (laughs) And then he did X the owl. And Henry had a pussycat. You know, he was doing all this. He'd pick him up, put him on his hand, and sometimes they talked to each other. He changed his voices. I thought, well, what in the world? You know, and I tell this story often. Uh, when I was growing up, black guys gambled, and they uh, play, played the numbers. They did all kinds of stuff in the middle of the street or on the street corners with each other. Sometimes, you know, sneaking around, having affairs with each other's girlfriends or wives. But whatever they did, and they drank. All of them uh, practically drank. 
they did not play with puppets. That was what the <laughs> kids did. And so I, I just couldn't, you know, get my head wrapped around the fact that Fred was doing all these voices. They were interesting to me, but they were juvenile. And I thought, well, what in the world is he doing that for? Well, I finally, I got out of there. And I have to tell you, I was very suspicious of him after he played with those puppets because <laughs> I, I was. I was young. Culturally, I hadn't had that experience. And I thought maybe he was trying to use them to seduce me. <laughs> I did. I swear to you, I did. I <laughs> You're laughing at me. But I, no, I can understand that because I know people ask you if he was gay all mm -hmm. the time. I'm laughing at the idea, at the idea of it. And actually, not to get too sidetracked, but you know the Maxwell King book. And there's yes. that quote from him about being in the, in the middle. I'm not John Wayne. So mm -hmm. consequently, for some people, I'm not the model man of the house. Right. Uh, you know, I must be right smack in the middle because I have found women attractive and I have found men attractive. I'm not going to ask you to speculate on his sexuality, right, but right. having known him, what do you think he means by that when he said that? Well, he was in the middle in terms of being a non-judgmental uh, presence. Regardless yeah. of what people are, I could, he could understand. He was very empathetic. Yeah. And by being empathetic, he understood that sometimes men liked men and other times women liked women. And yeah. he was so empathetic, he was not going to judge people on that basis. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing. And also because I think that there were guys who spoke openly about his being less than, you know, the macho man of the town or of the family. And they, they made remarks about it. He was gentle. He was an introvert. He was quiet. And they mistook that, I think, sometimes uh, as a, uh, a brand and a sign of what his sexuality was. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's true. I think he was a person who was very gentle. He knew what it was like to be teased and abused. And he was not a teaser. and He wasn't going to abuse anybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that they mistook that gentleness, that thought he was a very thoughtful person for something feminine in our society. Emotions were generally associated with women and brawn is associated with men. Well, as you live life, you often realize that there are men who are sensitive and women who are bronze. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have big women who live up to their reputation in terms of their physical strength. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of girlfriends who were like that and um, they would move furniture around, they'd pick up suitcases and boxes or whatever. And say, get out of the way, move. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very butch by that definition. But there are lots of women who have now have the freedom to express that side of themselves if they want to. We've, we've gone to an extended uh, revolution about sexual roles and uh, uh, who we are deep inside. And we often realize that we're, we're not totally one thing or totally another. That's what I have found in life. Mm -hmm. So what Fred was expressing, he was just ahead of his time, in my opinion. And he, I think the, the idea of a feminized man is becoming more common in our society because I'm here at Middlebury College where they have house husbands and the wife has got the PhD in math or philosophy or religion or she's a preacher, she's a minister and he's, he, didn't, he, he finished high school and he does woodwork or he does handiwork or something like that. So I began to realize that a long time ago that people would put labels on you, but they did not make them true. 
And that's what I think poor Fred was the victim of somebody projecting roles on him, how he was supposed to behave. Well, I think what you were going before I interrupted you was how different he was and the acceptance he showed you. Well, he never, he never, um, how do I say this? Fred was uh, reaching out and, um, and encouraging me from the very beginning. He became a kind of subconscious mentor. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, he saw a very bright person here who could sing. He loved my music. I considered him a fan for the first couple of years. Uh, I, and I still did the day he died. But I mean, a fan in the sense that, well, that's what it really is about. He likes my voice. But I began to recognize early on that he was doing things that you don't just do if you're a fan. You don't, um, you're, you're not so tender and so understanding as he was. When they had the riots in Pittsburgh after Dr. King was killed, uh, in uh, that was April 4th, 1968. And um, I, I lived in a community called Shenley Heights, and it was a, what I call a black bougie neighborhood, bourgeois, black bourgeois. They were black people, doctors and lawyers and preachers and all that. And I lived up on the third floor. And you, if you look out the windows up there, you could see uh, the beginnings of downtown Pittsburgh or what they call the hill district that led into the downtown area. And I could look over many of the houses up there on the third floor. And so when they, Dr. King was killed, you know, there were riots in Memphis and Nashville and Atlanta, all over uh, uh, Newark, New Jersey, and as well as uh, Harlem. And Lord have mercy, people really uh, were just infuriated that this man, somebody had, dared to harm Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And so the cities went up in fire. Well, Pittsburgh did also. And I lived only about six, seven blocks from the heart of the, the black ghetto. And so Fred calls me up on the telephone and says, Francois, how are you doing up there? I said, well, I don't know. I'm fine, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know any place to go. I didn't know anybody to call. I was new in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'd only been there several months at that point, eight or nine months. And he said, well, I'm going to come up there and get you. You get some things and put them in a a bag and a luggage and get ready to come downstairs. I'll be right over. Look out the window. I could see the street from from, and I'll be over. And he hung up. I didn't I I didn't tell him I didn't want to go anywhere. But I uh, especially with him and in in the white neighborhood where he lived. So. He came over and his car was outside. And I saw it and I had some things I had put into a piece of luggage and he, he absolutely insisted that I come with him. So I did. I, uh, I'm cutting it very short. I went with him and it's the first time I felt protected by a man. Uh, my father didn't give me that sense of protection. Neither did my stepfather. Mm-hmm. But Fred made it clear to me that he was going to take care of me. He was in charge. And I said, well, so this is what it feels like to have someone taking care of you. He had that song, I'm taking care of you, taking good care of you. Mm-hmm. For once I was very little too. Now I take care of you. Oh my God. 
And once in a while he sang that song to me, I'm taking care of you. Oh and I'd look over there at him and I said, Fred? <laughs> he said, yes, you know, it's true. He was very, very um, honest, straightforward, and comfortable expressing his love for me. He was not shy in that area at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful because of his unconditional love. It gave me the courage to open up those painful places where I had stopped trusting men because of my father and stepfather. And because I thought if you are vulnerable like that, you're going to get hurt. Something's going to happen that's not going to be very pleasant. And that basically had to do with the fact that my father had beat me up when I was um, still a a teenager in high school because I, I tried to help my mother. He was beating her up and I couldn't stand the thought of it. And watching it, so I, I I I interfered, and I got beat up. They were trying to help him get off of me, and the police came. You know the sirens, the whole horrible scene that you could imagine. And so, I I was always, um, and, and I internalized that to the extent I was never going to trust again. No man, look what can happen to you. I'm not going through that again. So when Fred started being concerned and fatherly. I, I was asking myself, does he really mean this? Is this serious? Is this for real? And if it is, what, what does he want then? Because I had already been approached two or three times in my life by older men for sex. Mm-hmm. They, they recognized my femininity or the fact that I was interested and mm-hmm. soft and sweet and all that. So I was very, um, once again, I just, I just kept my distance. I never gave in. Uh, it was a long time before I capitulated so to speak and and realized that this was daddy love this was unconditional daddy love and that it was safe to love him back but um he never uh made me feel that he judged me negatively rather than that he made me feel like he's waiting for the real me to go ahead and show myself because it was acceptable it would be acceptable to him and uh, unfortunately it happened in a strange way in the sense that I was uh, a single guy in Pittsburgh, and in the evenings, I wanted to go out and have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of buddies that I knew from the Carnegie Mellon, we got together, and my friend Jimmy Reen, James Green was his name. We went out downtown. We found this club called the Playpen. Boy, did we have some fun kicking around that place. I love to dance. I've always loved and I love watching it. If I can't do it anymore because I'm stiff and <laughs> I've got two new knees here. Oh my and it, gosh. They do not allow for very much dancing and carrying on. Man. But in my day, boy, I had my turn. I can never, uh, I don't regret. So oh. I went downtown. Someone told Fred behind my back. I never found out who told him that I had gone to the club. Mm-hmm. But someone did. I'm so, uh, I asked him so many times. Who told you that, Fred? He would never, ever utter a word as to who it was. And um, the point is that he said to me, you know, you have to stop that. You can't go back there. You can't go back anymore if you're going to be on the show. Mm-hmm. Because someone will see you, and they're going to talk about you, friends, and they're going to say terrible things that are not true. But you won't be able to say they're not true because they'll say, oh, He's gay, and he goes to that club, and he does this, and he does that. They're cruel people, he said, and they will say terrible things, and I don't want that for you, and the show could not survive 
such a scandal because he said it would be a scandal that somebody on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was gay. So I don't, I don't think Sears, that was his, one of his sponsors, and um, Johnson Johnson and Heinz 57, those guys. He, he shared with me, he, I had to make a choice. Do I want to be on the show or do I want to go off and be gay? And there was a major change in our relationship then because I felt, I felt a certain prompting not to give up this position or give up this assignment. And mm -hmm. I began to feel that I was anointed to do it, that I was called to do it, that I was supposed to be there because it was given to me in such a, on such a platinum platter, as I like to say, not gold or silver, but platinum. And he really made me feel welcome. And so I said, oh, there's, there's going to be a responsibility to do this. And it's going to be a sacrifice on my part. Yeah. So I, I tried to be straight. I tried to. I had talked to my minister about it, and he said the same kind of thing. You can't be gay and be out, Francois. You've got to let that go. If you're going to have a career, you've got to let that go. And, you know, some of the most famous stars in Hollywood were gay, but they uh, didn't come out mm -hmm. at all. Rock Hudson. There's mm -hmm. Hollywood now on Netflix that talks all about that. Yes. Yeah. Because it was very common. Mm -hmm. And many times Hollywood uh, set them up with a woman and they were no longer, no more interested in that woman than the trees I'm looking at out here in my yard. They were gay. But Hollywood said, you have to go with this one. Or you have to go with that one. And they, they made them play the roles of uh, cavalier, um, you know, uh, romantics who were darling to all the women and having sex behind, you know, surreptitiously everywhere. It simply was not true. So I said, all right, I'm going to get married. I had talked to the minister, to the deacon, to my friends, to my counselor, to Fred, everybody. One of my buddies that I did speak with said, it's going to be tough if you're out there gay all the time. They're not going to like it. So I, I got married. And, of course, it was a disaster. It was the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I regret so many times that I got married because, first of all, it hurt my former wife. Yes. I never, never, ever wanted to hurt her. And secondly, she was my best friend. And we hung out together. Yeah. We did some very, very wonderful, enjoyable things. And tr she did not deserve that experience. And I always felt guilty. It was years before I forgave myself. And uh, in my heart, I know that she forgave me, but because she was always much nicer to me afterwards, whenever I would see her, she was very, very, very sweet. And um, I didn't see her for two or three years. I knew where she was. And occasionally we exchanged phone calls, but we did not hang out. And one day she called and said, I want a divorce because I have met someone. And I have to tell you, I knew it was the right thing to do because I had already left. We had already been living apart. But I was a little sorry that she had found somebody. But I said, absolutely. I gave her a divorce. I made it as easy as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure enough, we got divorced. And I've never married or lived with anybody since then. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't love anybody. But I realized that I had to keep a certain image. Uh, and without any scandal. So I chose to live alone. And uh, I discouraged some guys who were reaching out 
and expressing themselves uh, as a, in an affectionate way with me. But at the same time, I was involved with Nikki. So I didn't need another involvement like that. And mm -hmm. he never wanted, he was uh, what they call on the down low. Nikki was not, uh, did not want to live an openly gay life. And he told me that. And uh, he felt it would, it would kill his father. His father was a big football daddy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was, he wanted him to go to Michigan and play with the Michigan Wolverines. I think that's what they are. I'm not sure. All that kind of stuff. Instead, he chose to go to Oberlin, which is a sensitive in, uh, intellectual school. And uh, he was a writer and, and uh, he was athletic there on the football team and stuff. And the, the, the fellows around him knew that he swung both ways. That was the phrase. Mm -hmm. And I was swinging on the one side and uh, a girlfriend that he had was swinging on the other side. Wow. And he, he didn't make any, um, it was, as I say, six feet four, a big, uh, handsome, uh, muscular man in that part of his life. And he, uh, he, he would, if you didn't like it, if you said something about him, he challenged people physically. Well, I did not, but he did. We were very different. Yeah. And uh, he seduced me one night in the uh, locker room after a game. And we, have been, we had been together. For up to 15 years after that I, I always saw him two or three times a year either I would uh, go away somewhere to meet with him or he came to where I was singing in Texas or in uh, Alabama or in Florida Mick, uh, Nick, Nicholas would show up and uh, I'd have a, a roommate for two days or in the, you know, in the hotel wherever I was staying he joined me and uh, that was part of the way that I saw him were you happy with him? With, with that him? Yes, Lord, I was happy. But the only reason I, I feel I was able to adjust to the fact that he had a full-time relationship with someone else was because I was busy with my, building my career. Mm -hmm. I wasn't... Um, that, to me, took so, a lot of time. The rehearsing, the learning of the languages, the, the repertoire... It was a never-ending task, learning a new opera, memorizing, and uh, studying voice. I studied uh, language coaching. Lord have mercy, for 10 years, uh, the French repertoire, the, the Italian repertoire, the German repertoire. You could never really, really study enough. I had coaches, especially when I was at the Metropolitan Opera Studio for seven years, and I took advantage of all of that um, theater uh, 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 information that they could share with me, how to dress, how to walk, uh, how to carry your body, how to look, uh, how to carry, wear, wear those wigs and hmm. those uh, ruffles, you know, in their, uh, uh, their uniforms, the outfits that they wore. It was, to me, a very uh, intense couple of years of learning stuff. So the fact that I wasn't with Nikki didn't, uh, didn't hurt so much. Because I was really, really busy, my and my career was taking off. I um, uh, did productions of Porgy and Bess that went out to California for five or six months at the Amundsen Theater, mm. and then after that, I came back uh, to New York and I auditioned for Lauren Mazel and the Cleveland Orchestra, and uh, they chose me to be Sporting Life. <laughs> so I got busy on Sporting Life and. I went off to Cleveland and the Blossom Festival, and I was a huge hit. 
So all of a sudden, you know, I was in the newspapers and uh, I was being, I got a, a manager. I never had had that. I had not to that point had a musical manager and um, people began to make plans for me. Oh, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. Well, I, I don't like to talk about this, but I think it's important for me to tell you that I was sexually harassed okay. uh, by, by a very powerful man from London Records mm-hmm. who uh, was the CEO and he had the worst crush on me. And he let it be known in, in our circle of friends that he intended to fulfill his uh, physical desire for sex with me. At first, I ignored it because I thought, well, that's not someone I would be romancing with. I just didn't feel that way about him. Mm. And I wanted uh, my freedom just to be myself, whatever I wanted to do. But I wasn't ready to get involved that way with him. Well, one day after, oh, a year or so, uh, we did the recording. It was a huge success. And um, I was um, around when they were auditioning for another Porgy and Bess on Broadway. And uh, I had to have permission from London Records to do that production on Broadway. It was with RCA Records. And uh, let's see, the Houston Grand Opera, I think, did it and uh, brought it to New York. And I was supposed to be sporting life. But the, the head of London Records said, we will not release you. And I was in a shock that they would not release me to do that Broadway show. That would have made all the difference. I said, well... So this guy invited me over to his house. Let's talk. He had a lovely apartment in New York, the kind that I, I still can't afford. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't live outside or anything. I have a beautiful three-bedroom home that I'm very, very happy. <laughs> but this man lived, you know, like uh, um, uh, some of the, well, like Trump, borderline yeah. Trump. And uh, so when I went to his home, I was incredibly impressed. I didn't expect, you know, to be a part of it in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, um, after we sat for a while, he had cooked a delicious dinner. Uh, he had let his houseboy go and the maid go. And next thing I know, we were the only ones there. And at, at, at some point, he made an advance towards me and was kissing me and holding me and squeezing me. And I said, you know, this is not what I want. This is not why I came here. And um, he, you know, he persisted a little bit, but I was, I went stiff as a board and finally, and he stopped. So what's the matter with you? I said, this is not what I wanted. I wanted a friendship, but not an intimate relationship with you. Well, you know how I felt. I everyone's told you. And I said, yes, but I thought we could be friends. And he said, well, we can't. We can't be friends. And he said, I'll I'll see you later. I suppose you're ready to leave. I'm ready for you to leave. And he literally was throwing me out of his house. So I left. Did he let you out of contract to do the show? Never. It was a five-year contract, and I was like in the third year. And he would not. And I talked to Houston. I talked to the, the people. They said, there's nothing we can do unless he signs that release, Francois. And he has said he won't sign it. I said, well, I will be damned. That mean MF. Well, so, the information being that had you. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Had I gone all the way with him, there are all kinds of things he would have done. He talked about a new production of uh, Pagliacci where I could play one of the young tenor parts. 
as a young uh, clown. He talked about a couple of productions like that that they were going to do on London Records. He said, you know, you'd be fantastic as Beppe. That's the name of the character in uh, uh, in, um, Pagliacci. And he he mentioned a second one, uh, a a production of... um, not Marriage of Figaro, uh, Lord. Anyway, oh, the the the, uh, the um, uh, Flying Dutchman by Wagner had a part for Storiamon, which is a steerer. Mm-hmm. There's Storiamon. And he said, oh, that's a lyric tenor part. It's great for you. And if you were around, I couldn't help but cast you in those in that part. You know, you'd become a recording star. And I thought it was just because you're a good guy and you're a hardworking singer. Of course, you you would be considered for those roles and they they disappeared the talk disappeared i called his office he never spoke to me again and i felt the doors slamming everywhere that i went practically they would not uh, give me an audition i couldn't get hired even james levine never hired me and i'm positive it's because of terry and the way he behaved them from london records uh, they were in cahoots together because James Levine conducted all of the, the great operas that he was doing on London Records. And it was, you know, in the middle of his career, but he was still young, relatively young. And he was uh, under contract. He was a hot item. So I know that they conspired together to uh, to blackball me. And uh, I, yeah, it was horrible. I had friends who uh, said, well, we don't know what's the matter. Terry doesn't talk about you anymore. They were still in his circle. Oh, and we had this function or that function, and he, you know, he got tickets for everybody. But I never spoke to him again. He never, even if I called on the phone, his secretary would say he's not available. It's horrible. What did Fred mm-hmm. say? Well, I did talk to Fred, as a matter of fact, and he encouraged me to stay around people like himself, come here with us. Uh, it seems as almost like there was more work for me to do. Uh, he tried in his way to, uh, I think, to get me more jobs because all of us felt so bad about what we knew Terry was doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was Mr. Rogers took us on tour. Yes. Uh, to Cleveland, to St. St. Louis, to Chicago, to Kansas, all, all over the place. And several times... Dr. Clemens, I just want to pause. You can start the story over again. I just want to make sure you don't have any other interview scheduled. We've gone an hour already. I'm happy to go longer. I just oh. want to make sure you're not missing. Uh, oh, no, I'm not missing anything. I'm sitting very, very comfortably here at home in my papa chair. Well, I'm very much enjoying it. So please tell me the story. <laughs> of the I really am. It's a, I, I'm talking okay. to a childhood hero, to be honest with you. So please continue. <laughs> All right. So. As we would go around the country and, and do these uh, concert visits with the young people uh, at daycare centers, at um, public broadcasting stations, mm-hmm. uh, every city has one at least. And they would invite Fred and they would have a Mr. Rogers Day. And they would invite, I don't know how much they paid, or, but they had to come with their parents. And they brought the little kids to the television station. They lined up sometimes for several blocks outside of the studio. Oh, yes. To meet Mr. Rogers. Well, I was one of the guys inside who came with him, and I sang a medley of his songs 
And there were several others that I liked over the years. And uh, Johnny Costa, the musical director, would come and he would lead the orchestra if we were with an orchestra, which we frequently were. And uh, it was Indianapolis or Memphis or Nashville or Columbus, Ohio or Cincinnati. We'd go there as the guest of the orchestras. And Fred would speak with the conductor sometimes in front of me and say, you know, Mr. Smith is a fine singer. He said, you could uh, do a lot worse than hiring him uh, sometime when you're doing a Messiah or an Elijah, uh, something like that. He would be very happy, wouldn't you, Francois? And I said, yes, sir, I certainly would. <laughs> and so that, he left it there. And then the, it was up to me and the conductor to decide if we were going to follow through. And many times the conductor gave me his card to say, well, I'm planning this, I'm planning that, I haven't cast it yet. I'd be very happy to talk with you later about it, Mr. Clemens. To make a long story short, 50% of those times I did get the job. He was like an unofficial manager, uh, impresario, who introduced me to people who would not have given me the time of day otherwise. Mm -hmm. In fact, at the Metropolitan Opera Studio, I became aware that there were some major conductors and major productions that they were going to do. They came to the Met to audition young singers. And no one told me about those auditions until I heard about it through the grapevine the next day or two days later. And it was very, it was a very bitter pill to swallow, but I swallowed it. I tried to, I tried to put a, a you know, a stiff upper lip. You don't, you don't let people know you're dying on the inside. You, you pretend you're strong and you don't care. But I did care. And it was very painful because some of the people who went knew they were going, knew that I didn't have an invitation. And they never said, Francois, the Kansas Lyric Opera is here in town. Do you know about that? Well. That would have made all the difference because then I could have made a couple of phone calls. And they were always very cordial. They were never nasty, but they didn't hire me. And that was a, there were a lot of people like that. I was very popular as Officer Clemens, but none of them went out of their way to hire me or to see to it that I learned a part. Or... I was always an observer in some of those um, experiences. I stood on the outside and I watched because uh, America has not yet accepted a young black romantic tenor on the lyric stage. There's a young fellow from uh, Youngstown, as a matter of fact, uh, trying to think of his last name, uh, who has had quite a, a career at the Metropolitan Opera, but he's the only romantic lead since George Shirley was the first one oh, wow. uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s. And it's my my uh, career was tr truncated by Terry McEwen and James Levine, and I swear to that. James Levine is paying a bitter pill right now. The Metropolitan Opera has seen fit to ask him to step down and out. He's no longer conducting anything. I uh, was not involved with Plaza Domingo, but he had the same thing. And Terry McEwen is now dead. He's been dead for 10 years. That's... Not around to harass anyone. No, not around to exactly. And as a matter of fact, he died of AIDS. The guy that was his lover died. Uh, there was a whole incestuous bunch of them together. Every single one of them died uh, through this, oh my God. unfortunately, through this problem of AIDS. And I thought to myself a couple of times, had I been involved with him, I may very well have been, uh, uh, you know, AIDS. And I, too, would probably have died. In those days well we're so glad you didn't obviously 
And, I am too. <laughs> you know, to have you around and now share your story. Hopefully it will change some minds. Before we leave, I have to ask, it's an indulgent. It's an indulgence on my part, and I'm 100% going to admit it, but would you please sing? There are I knew! Ways. I knew hey, that I was it. <laughs> Could you please? There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways. Many ways, many ways to say I love you. There's the singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something special that you know someone would love to hear. The singing way, the singing way. The singing way to say I love you. Cleaning up your room can say I love you. And making special pictures for the holidays. And making plays. You'll find many ways to say I love you. You'll find many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. goodness that was beautiful <laughs> thank you you're very welcome 